Good to welcome you here this morning. Thank you for coming out and worshiping with us today. I want to thank all those who are involved in the, uh, been involved in the demolition process of the old, uh, of our old uh, church site. Amazing progress has been done in such a short amount of time. Appreciate all the volunteers who worked in such a professional manner. All those who are working on the brick recovery, I think we have close to 13,000 uh, bricks at this time. That's an awesome task. I don't know, at least double that there. We'll be at least twice that before they're completely done. If you have any time to volunteer on that, we would appreciate all the help. I'm sure that, uh, that we can get there. I do want to, uh, I do want to let you know that uh, we have started... Uh, uh, talking with the owner of uh, with with Justin Roberts, the owner of the property just to the east of us here, the old Burger Den property. It's about 1.1 to 1.3 acres, and we are uh, just before we move into the building phase, trying to look at all the options that are out there. So we're going to at this time, and, and so all we've done is start with preliminary discussion. Uh, whatever legal things they had that may have held that up at one time, it, th that has been removed, so they can move ahead with the sale. They are asking, I think, 499. I think our figures show maybe more like a $360,000 uh, range, but nonetheless, they're starting to uh, discuss that. We will have an informational meeting on August 9th at 7 p.m. That's a Tuesday night. We'll give you all the information that we have at that time. We don't have any more now than what I've just shared with you. And then we're scheduling a vote, a business meeting on August 21st, right after, right after the 11 o'clock service, uh, to decide what we want to do as far as moving forward on that property. And both of those dates are subject to uh, gathering more information between now and then. We don't want to rush into it, but we don't want to, we need to make a decision sooner than later before we enter into the actual building, building uh, design phase. So that is where we are on that. Are there any questions regarding uh, the demolition or the building? This, this property was signed, we signed on purchasing this, trading our property for this plus uh, some cash that closed this past Thursday, so we are now Good Times Baptist Church. God is good all the time, Baptist Church. Amen. 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 Yeah, let the good times roll. Okay, good. Any uh, any other questions? Some clarification. Well, we're in what's called the needs assessment uh, phase right now, which has to do with taking a look at our ministry and, and taking a look at, in order to proceed with that ministry and even increase ministry in the future, what do we need as far as facilities go? That process will, be, will wrap up in about a month, and then we'll move into what we call the building design phase, where we actually try to take... Uh, the information we have at that time and design that into what's that look like as far as a 
a sanctuary, what's it look like as far as classrooms and, and, uh, and other uh, auxiliary rooms. And that process, an engineer, uh, a, uh, we'll have an architect involved at some point in time during that process. That's about a two to three month uh, process there. So, so I, I don't know when we'll have the plans that we could actually start building. I would ideally like to start before winter sets in and shuts us down. If we can't get started by then, it'll be March 1 before we'll be able to, uh, to break ground, from my experience. So, uh, as I said, around September, October, we expect to enter into the actual building design phase where we'll have a, come up with a blueprint. I have built a number of buildings from blueprints as well as a lot of uh, napkin drawings, just depending on what we're trying to accomplish. Today, as we look at 1 Corinthians, we're looking at God's blueprint, God's blueprint for humanity. And that blueprint has not changed since man first appeared on the scene. And we're also going to see where we have strayed from his blueprint quite a little bit and why, where we've gone so wrong in this 21st century. We're going to look at God's design for humanity and what some would even consider the foolishness of God at that point. And in particular, we're going to look at the gospel and four characteristics of the gospel. I told you last week I was visiting with someone whose child was preaching what they said was the gospel, what he referred to as the gospel. Unfortunately, I know that that was a false gospel, and it will not lead to the same, the same end. They're following a false blueprint, if you will. The true gospel has two parts. The first part is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ or the cross. The second part is the resurrection, which we will save towards the end of this book. Today we're going to look at the crucifixion and what it means for mankind. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Now Paul is looking at the divisions that had were already beginning in the church at that early date, at maybe 20, 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. The church is just 20 or 30 years old. And Paul is, is looking especially at Corinth and, and looking at the divisions that are already beginning there. The idea of, I want to follow this man. Well, I prefer this gospel. Or I prefer the teaching and the eloquency of an Apollos. Or I want to follow Peter because he was, he was part of the inner circle. Or I'll follow Paul because he started the church. But you see the divisions beginning already. And Paul is saying, and, and I shared a couple of weeks ago, that the cure for that was Christ. And Paul is going to reiterate that and explain that in a little bit more detail here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize. but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul came to preach the gospel. 
And as I share with you today, I can say with confidence that I believe this is the absolute true one and only gospel. Because I'm taking 100% of it from God's word, from the teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I was sent by God not to, not to start my own church, not to baptize anybody in particular, but to preach the gospel. And I will encourage you in your Sunday school class, in your youth work, in your Bible study, in your cell group, in your personal life, in your, the way you raise your family, to preach the gospel. In other words, stick with the gospel. Stick with the truth. Don't get carried away with human wisdom. Don't let that come in and take over where the gospel should be central in our lives and in our teaching. Paul says the gospel is what we preach. And that, I think, is what we should be preaching and teaching and living. Paul says, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You want power in your life, power in your testimony, power in your family, power in your church. This is where it starts. When we are dealing with the gospel... We're dealing with a historic, with an historical event. We're dealing with a date in time when Jesus was born a man. You can historically check that out, and we should. We celebrate that event, of course, at Christmas. But that event is of little consequence unless we recognize that that same baby that came into the world in a supernatural manner also ended up being crucified by the Romans and the Jews for a crime that he did not commit. That perfect person, the only person to live a sinless life ever, of all the great philosophers, of all the great religious people, he's the only one that lived a sinless life, wound up on a cross, cursed like a common criminal. A lot of people today wear crosses around their necks, even in their ears some probably in their noses, others tattooed on the body. It has turned out to be a symbol of sorts for Christianity. Paul would never have worn a cross for a symbol any more that you and I would wear a needle symbolizing lethal injection or a little electric chair in our ear symbolizing capital punishment. The cross was a way to torture and put to death the worst criminals. But here's the rub. Jesus was put on that cross for me and for you and for every man, woman, and child to ever live. He was killed taking my punishment and paying for my sins. Without the cross, without Jesus paying for my sins and yours, the sins of the whole world, our lives, every one of them, Every good deed we ever did, every good thought, every good action is a waste. It is all useless. It is all a waste. Ray Stedman says, The word of the cross, or the basic announcement of the crucifixion of Jesus, is a fact of history. With conflicting, it conflicts with our philosophies 
And they are confronted in the cross. The cross, he says, condemns our righteousness. It negates all of our good works and deeds and renders them totally useless. A single individual yielding to the God who made him is worth far more than the entire universe. But man without God is totally worthless. His only value being in the possibility that that divine life can be reinstated. Now there are two reactions at this point. One is foolishness. One is you are telling me that all of the wisdom of the world, all the wisdom and all the progress that man has made is useless and is futile. That is foolishness. Verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we lived in Payette, I had a neighbor who was the nicest individual you would ever meet. Very pious and very religious. We had many religious discussions. He used to almost kind of chuckle at me and, and kind of patronize me a little bit at, at my notion that we needed to be saved, that we needed a savior. That is the way the world looks at us, somewhat harmless. They just let us go our way because we're, we're harmless or naive. Or some are threatened by us, those who are perishing. You see, there are two classes of people in the world, those who are perishing, and my heart breaks to think of it. My heart breaks for each one of them. They are not bad people. They are wonderful people, wonderful neighbors, good people as far as human goodness goes. Unfortunately, it does not go very far when it comes to being saved. They are perishing, Paul says. Because they do not know the gospel, but more importantly, because they have not received or believed the gospel. The world thinks that this, this kind of talk is foolishness. The cross is foolishness. The notion that my goodness is useless is inconceivable to those who are perishing. They haven't perished yet. They still have a hope, but they're headed there. There are probably some here this morning who are thinking, this is foolishness. Good people, good people do not perish and go to hell. However, I'll ask you this. Why then was the one person who was perfect killed for the sins of that good person? Why was the one person who was perfect, why was he killed for a good person? The second response is, and this is the power of God for those who are being saved. This message that I'm sharing with you is the power of God for those who are being saved. Many of you saw Rose's testimony a couple of weeks ago. At that time, you did not realize that only a year ago, she was a husband in a same-sex marriage. But now, after hearing the gospel, receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, she has been saved and born again. And that confusion and misery that, that she was, that surrounded her has been removed. She has experienced the power of God unto salvation. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And Paul quotes Isaiah here in verse 19. He says, God is speaking through Isaiah, saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And what Isaiah was specifically speaking about here had to do with something that was coming in the life of, of Israel, and particularly at Jerusalem, where the Assyrian army would surround Jerusalem with a couple of hundred thousand with a couple hundred thousand troops, would barricade the city, and was literally starving them out. And from human intelligence, from human wisdom, there was no way out. But God confounded that human wisdom, and he sent his destroying angel, and 185,000 soldiers were killed that night. When Jerusalem woke up the following morning, when the survivors woke up the following morning, they looked around, and they saw that, that something strange and terrible had happened, and somehow their wisdom had been confounded. So next, we see that the cross or the gospel or the cross is a message. It is, it is a message of foolishness for the world. To the world, this is foolish talk. This is nonsense that, that my goodness is, is worth nothing. It is nonsense that someone would have to die for me. Now, maybe I, I obey the commands. Maybe I'm a good person. Then God helps me just a little bit. That's Nonsense. That is man's thinking. That is a false gospel at that point. But the gospel, the, the third characteristic of the gospel is that it is power for those who are being saved. Paul says that's who we are. We are not yet saved. We're not yet saved. In one sense we are, but we've not gone through that final stage yet. As our dear sister Chris Kramer is there today. She is saved. We're in the process of going through that. She is entered in through there. Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded miraculous signs. Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. No one can say, I did it. No one can say, I am good enough. So that no one may boast before him. Ray Steadman went on to say, quotes Vance Packard in, in a book called People Shapers, where Vance writes, a person can be high in the learning ability 
and memory and still be a fool. The two do not add up to either a brilliance or a wisdom in thinking. Until someone comes along with a pill for wisdom, we might better aspire to become a more humane society rather than a brainy one. So he's taking a look at the human condition and from a secular standpoint, realizes that all of our learning is not necessarily getting us where we would like to be. We are so smart and so progressive. I heard this week in the, the, uh, the department, the Oregon Department of Corrections, that, uh, that an individual who identified as a female was being transferred out of one of the uh, female correction uh, institutions because uh, apparently he'd impregnated two, two, two of the other inmates. He thought it was a good idea to be in a... In a an institution where they're all women and the state of Oregon figured, well, if that's what he thinks he is and we have to accommodate that. That's the wisdom of man. That's the wisdom of the age in which we live. That is the foolishness that Vance Packard was speaking about. Every generation wrestles with the same problems, Ray Stedman writes, because ultimately our knowledge and wisdom changes nothing. Philosopher Hegel says history teaches us that history teaches us nothing. Winston Churchill says certain it is that while men are gathering knowledge and power with ever increasing speed, their virtues and their wisdom have not shown any notable improvement as the centuries have rolled. Under sufficient stress, starvation, terror, warlike passion, or even cold intellectual frenzy, the modern man we know so well will do the most terrible deeds and his modern woman will back him up. The world does not know God through wisdom. T.S. Lewis says, all our knowledge only brings us closer to our ignorance and all our ignorance closer to death, but closer to death and no closer to God. And he asks, where is the life we have lost in living the gospel is foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved, it is a power to change our lives. And number four, verse 30, it is because of him, it is because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. There is a different kind of wisdom. There is a wisdom that is from God. And that wisdom results in our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Believing the gospel places us in Jesus. It is all Jesus and none me. But God places us through the gospel, through the power of the cross, places us in Jesus which results, number one, in our righteousness. We have a right relationship with God. That emptiness that was there before is gone. It's been filled. Number two, I have a holiness. His blood covers every sin of mine. Now, Everett took exception to this, but I, I, I'm pointing this out not to say that Will Smith needed to apologize or not apologize. But I want to pick up on one of his, on his comment. 
Will Smith slapped uh, Chris Rock at the Emmys a few weeks back or months back, if you will recall. And either as a result of that or prior to that, apparently Will Smith was in therapy. And I was listening to part of his six-minute uh, apology this week. He says, I have guilt without shame. I am human. Now, that's a pretty sorry way to apologize if you're really trying to apologize. And whether he needed to or not, I, I'm not... I'm not saying that, but what he's saying is because of my humanity, I, that's, that's just how I am. That's just how I am. Yes, but at that point, at that point in our humanity, because we are human, we are not righteous, we are not holy, and we're not forgiven without Jesus Christ. And we do not have, number three, redemption. I have been bought out of sin and slavery to sin. If you are in Christ, you've been bought out of slavery to sin. Imagine you are a slave at a slave auction. And Jesus buys you. But he buys you with his life. He has to pay for you with his life. And with his death, he sets you free. That is us. That is what has happened. Why? Why? Because God so loved the world, because of God's unconditional love for you and I. I'll conclude with some thoughts here from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writes, It is hardly complimentary to God that we should choose him as an alternative to hell. So I'm going to think about that for a second. In other words, we can go to hell or we can choose God. Well, obviously a thinking person would go, well, that's a no-brainer. But unfortunately, there's many, many, many out there who do not think that far. But C.S. Lewis says it's hardly complimentary to God. He says, yet even this God accepts. The creature's illusion of self-sufficiency must, for the creature's sake, be shattered. In other words, our... Our illusion of self-sufficiency must be shattered. And by trouble or fear of trouble on earth, by crude fear of eternal flames, God shatters it. Unmindful of his diminishing glory at that point. He says, I call this divine humility because it is a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down under us. A poor thing to come to him as a last resort, to offer up our own when it is no longer worth keeping. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms. But he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He would have us, even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him, because there's nothing better now to be had. And Paul is putting this forth as a solution for the division within the church, within our families, within our lives. And that solution is being in Jesus. There's no division here, Paul says, in Jesus. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father. Thank you for being a loving God. Thank you for being a loving God and sending your son and putting him on that cross so that we might have a relationship with you. Forgive us, Father, that, that it took that on our behalf, on our part. Forgive us, Father, that, that it, takes, it, it takes stripping everything away from us, unfortunately, before we're willing to admit and willing to turn to you. But thank you, Father, for accepting us whenever, whenever we're willing to do that. Whenever we're willing to accept your sacrifice and the power that comes to us and goes with receiving your son. Father, there are some here today who are living well below that power that is available. Maybe we're depending too much on the wisdom of the world. Maybe too much on our own knowledge. Too much on what we know about the situation. And not near enough on your power and your sufficiency. Father, we come to you helpless today. We come to you worthless today. And we thank you for bringing your power and bringing your worth into our lives. Father, we love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen.